John chapter 2, beginning in verse 13. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. And he poured out the coins of the money changers, and he overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now, when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. This is the word of the Lord. This morning is going to bring to a close this kind of mini-series that we did on the gospel. So what I'd like to do this morning is kind of put a cap on it, and then we will, we will shift to other things over the next weeks. This coming Sunday, Palm Sunday morning, Pastor Jason is going to be speaking to you next, next Sunday, um, partly um, because of the fact my wife had some surgery on Friday and it will enable me to be a bit more attentive to her needs here as she kind of gets back on her feet in the next few days. And uh, then I'll be back on Easter Sunday as we share together there. And then following that, we'll, we'll um, head a different direction as, and be announcing that in the next week or so. This morning, what I want to do is to look at this text where... Jesus is at the time of Passover, and he comes, the scripture says, to Jerusalem during this time, Passover. We've already made reference to Passover of the Old Testament and how this table is the true Passover lamb, but it's interesting how at the end of the text that we read this morning, Jesus is is uh, described in a, in a kind of a unique way, or at least what Jesus knew is described in a unique way. Look at it in verse 23. It says, Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name. In other words, there were people more and more coming to follow him. But Then it goes on to say um, a little later, But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That's an interesting piece of scripture there. It's interesting that John chose and all the things that he could write about to talk about that. The perception that Jesus had about man. We have been talking about um, that particular subject here the last couple of weeks particularly, but what he knew about man was that man was sinful. Now, the whole series, the whole series on the gospel was about a righteousness now being manifested 
from God. He, he knew ultimately that we needed a righteousness outside of ourselves. We spent a lot of time talking about that. I'm not going to go back to all of that. You can listen to it online if you missed it. But that whole idea of an alien righteousness, a, a righteousness that Jesus would accomplish for us and impute to us. We, we give him our sin. He imputes a righteousness to us. We, if you will, impute our sin to him. He, it didn't reside in him. We gave him our sin, something that wasn't residing in him. And he gives us something that doesn't reside in us, a righteousness, a perfection. That's, that's the ultimate essence of how much he knew man. He knew we needed a righteousness. God knew that. We needed a way to be made righteous because we had squandered our opportunity at that in the garden along with Adam. We sinned in Adam. So we couldn't do it on our own. But he knew more about man, even more. And you find that in the context here that we talked about the last couple of weeks. This, the context of this is Jesus' early ministry. And he's just, if you didn't read, we didn't read it, but he just performed a miracle at Cana of Galilee. First miracle, really, his inauguration of his miracles, of his manifestation of his glory, if you will, in the signs. It says in verse 11 of chapter 2, this, the first of his signs, his miracle of turning the water into wine, Jesus did at Cain of Galilee and manifested his glory, began to manifest his uniqueness, his beauty. But right after this, then we jump into this section where Jesus comes into the temple and he overturns the tables and, and, and drives out the money changers. And then in the context of that, the Jews say something to him. After all that has happened, they come to him and they say this in verse 18. What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, Jesus, show us something else. Give us some more. They, they, they tasted some. They'd heard about the miracle at Cana of Galilee at the wedding feast where he inaugurated his earthly ministry, really. They wanted more of that. There was an insatiable desire among these Jews to see more of that, more of that manifestation. And it's interesting how Jesus replies to them, and we'll come to that in a minute. But what I want us to see here is, is further on in the series that we came to. Remember, we, we talked about initially God provides a righteousness. But in order for that righteousness to get accomplished, Jesus had to suffer. We spent a couple of weeks talking about he had to suffer. That was the only way it could happen. He had to suffer. Now here again, that part of it, they don't want much to do with it here. And as Jesus goes along in his ministry, they hear more about him leaving and all of that, and they get even more agitated about Jesus talking about some things that really scared him. John chapter 6, as you would walk a little farther, he had the most people following him because of these miracles, because he was manifesting his glory. And in John chapter 6, it said, many turned and no longer followed him. He was at the peak there, and then it went downhill. Now, he's still kind of on the upward climb right now of gathering followers at this point. But you can see they're wanting signs. They they like this. There's something intriguing about this Jesus, and they kind of want to be connected to him, and they want more of it. 
but they were going to learn that it was going to turn, that Jesus had to suffer. And then as we talked about that part, that he had to suffer, he, he didn't entrust himself to them. That's, that's what I think that passage means when he said he knew it was in the heart of man. He knew at this point he was not going to entrust himself to man and man's agenda. He had to keep his own agenda, his own agenda. He had to keep his face toward Jerusalem. That's where he was headed ultimately ultimately to Jerusalem to die. And he had to suffer. He had to suffer. And then we turned it last week to talk about, so where does that leave us? Where does that leave us? Jesus walked the road of suffering. Well, we, we came to the text in Colossians where it says that we are called to fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction. What's it mean? What's lacking? It better not mean that something's lacking in a righteousness he provided for us. If there's something lacking in what he did and that righteousness isn't what it is told us that it is, that somehow it's lacking, we're all in trouble. Might as well go home and forget it. But it's not talking about that righteousness being lacking and what it took to accomplish that righteousness being lacking, his suffering. But rather, I think what is lacking is the personal presentation of that suffering to the world. So, so we follow one who had no place to lay his head. And we're called to follow him. We're called to give our lives away. We're called to be willing to sacrifice so that we can be a visible manifestation of a life that has been so transformed by understanding the suffering of Christ and all that it provides for us, that we're willing to walk in his steps. We're willing, for the sake of our fellow man and those around us who don't know this message, to to present that to them. Christ can't do it anymore. What's lacking is he's in heaven. He's gone to the right hand of the Father. No longer is it personally, physically visible on this earth. They aren't walking with it. They aren't rubbing shoulders with Jesus anymore in that sense, physically. So, so they're to rub shoulders with us, his people, his followers. And, and what we talked about last week, it really changes the things we're, we're concerned about, doesn't it? it? It takes away that pettiness that can so easily arise within us. The disciples, it, it cured it for them for sure. The, the the resurrection cured it for the disciples. They no longer worried about who was going to sit closest to him in the kingdom, who was going to be greatest in the kingdom. They were up until the time of really understanding that Jesus had to suffer, really having that be the hinge pin that changed everything for them. When they really saw that, rather than that having their world come undone that he suffered, they realized that brought their world together. And all of the pettiness went away. And they began to be concerned with more important things, much more important things. So that's where we left it. And now we come today to this table. What, what do we say to, to, to cap it all off and to put a, put a lid in the top of all of this? Well, what seemed to be the text I thought would be helpful is, is this one, this one right here, where Jesus talks about being the true temple. Look at the text again in verse 18. It says, So the Jews said to him, What sign do you show us for doing these things? What sign? What are you going to show us, Jesus? Let's do another miracle. Let's have another one, like the one before, like the one we heard about. Come on, Jesus. Work for us. 
Well, he was going to work for them, but not in the way they thought he was going to work for them. What he did is he said, okay, you want a sign? Let me tell you what the ultimate sign is. The ultimate sign of my glory. The apex of my glory. That's, that's really what they were asking. We want, we want to see more of your glory, Jesus. Well, Jesus said, let me just fast forward you to, to where it's really going to be the apex of it. Certainly these miracles manifested the glory of God. That's what the text says. But the ultimate glory of God in the face of Christ is seen in his suffering in the cross. Look what he says. What sign do you show us for doing these? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. And then the Jews scratched their heads. It's taken us 46 years to build this temple. And will you raise it up in three days? And then John tells us, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered. It's it's amazing to me how often the scripture tells us that, how often we see that, that the disciples up front didn't understand. Jesus was laying some groundwork. He was laying some things so that later they would remember that he said it and realize fully who he was. But that's the way Jesus did it. He didn't entrust himself to them. But he goes and he talks about the altar, and he talks about the temple, about him being the temple, the ultimate temple. That's the way the Old Testament is, is designed for us. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one book. In some ways, it probably does a disservice to us to have one say old and one say new because then we think it's two different things, but it's not. It's one story. It's one story of how God has come to provide a righteousness for a people. Now, in the first part of that story, he gives us lots of pictures, lots of pictures, lots of things that are pointing forward, lots of things that that do some, but they don't do everything. And so they, it, they, they leave us hanging. They leave us realizing that it's pointing ahead. It keeps moving us forward. It keeps pushing us down the road, if you will. And, and that's what the temple did. That's what the tabernacle did. In the, in the beginning, before the children of Israel came into to the promised land, before they had a permanent land, they, they were sojourners. They were... They were walking along, getting there. And so they had a portable tabernacle that when they p- picked up camp, they could pick up the tabernacle and go. And that tabernacle was the prerequisite for the temple. And the temple was the prerequisite for the ultimate temple, who would be Jesus. What does that tell us? What does that picture for us this morning? What does it mean that Jesus refers to himself as the temple. That's what he was doing. You understand that, don't you? Destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it. Kill me, three days I'll be raised. What he's saying is, I'm the true temple. And what was it that the temple represented to the people? The temple was the place that the people met God. That was the place. In the Old Testament, remember God, the story, God chose a people, not because they were more righteous, but because he decided to choose them and he decided to work through a people, he decided to work through the Jewish people, this plan of salvation, this plan of providing a righteousness. 
And as he worked through them, he began to give pictures to us as he, as he worked, and he gave the temple. But in that context, in that day, you had to come to the temple to meet God. It was a, a come-see kind of faith. In the, in the beginning, as God began to design it, it was the come-see. And as we talked about even in this series, there were some Gentiles that came. There were a few that became converts to Judaism. But in order to do that, they had to come to the temple. They had to come there to meet God. Now Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm the temple. That temple has passed away because it was just a picture. It was just a shadow of the true temple. So, So what is Jesus saying when he says and refers to himself as being the temple? He's saying, I'm the place you meet God. I'm the place that you become reconciled to God. The Holy of Holies was in the original temple and and only the high priest could go in. Other places in scripture, Jesus is our high priest. He's the the one that allows us access. On the day of his crucifixion, it it tells us that the, the, the veil in the temple was rent. Jesus gave us access to God. It's in him that we meet God. It's in him that we're reconciled to God. And in fact, one of the things that happened in the tabernacle, in the temple, was the sacrifice. I mean, why, why in the Old Testament, all these bloody sacrifices? What's all of that about? Again, it's a picture. It's a picture of the ultimate sacrifice, which this table represents, which is Christ. So in the temple, there were sacrifices, and Jesus is saying, I'm the temple. I'm not only the temple, but I'm the sacrifice in the temple. I'm the place that you meet God. The message was clear. Jesus was saying, a new day has dawned. A new time has come. I'm going to show you more of all that that Old Testament was pointing toward. All that it reveals to us. And he goes on to do that in the book of John. I'd like you to turn with me over just one or two pages in your Bible to John chapter 4. We're going to look at this text and then we're going to come to the temple or come to the table, which is representative of Jesus who is our temple. In John chapter 4, we, uh, we have an encounter where Jesus reinforces this idea that, that he is the place where we worship. It's him. It's not a certain location, but it's him. And, and he points that out to a woman, the Samaritan woman here in John chapter 4. She, she comes to the water, to the well to draw water. Jesus encounters her. He talks about her. In fact, he knows a lot about her life. And, and she's so amazed that she makes this statement in verse 19. Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshiped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. And Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know, we worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. Jesus is affirming that God did it through the Jewish people. But the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, 
he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. And then Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. I am the Messiah. I am the one which all of that Old Testament points to. She came to him and said, where do we worship? There was an argument among the Samaritans and the Jews of where they should worship. The Samaritans, for reasons, thought it was a mountain top. Jews thought it was Jerusalem and the temple. And, and the debate, Jesus doesn't answer that to her. She said, he, what he says to her, it's all changed. It's all new. My coming has inaugurated a new day. And I am the fulfillment of all of that. We, we don't any longer worship in just a place. We don't any longer have a faith that is a come see like it was in the Jewish um, Old Testament. Actually, we have a go tell because every place that we tell about Jesus, every place that his name is manifested and magnified can be a place of worship. We go and tell. It's not a locality. It's not a place. It's in Jesus. The place where people worship is in him. That's why the scripture says, where two or three are gathered in my name, I'm in the midst of them. What? The name of Christ. And that's what has also changed in this whole aspect of that righteousness. Certainly God worked through the Jewish people. But that thing that God was doing through the Jewish people was not for them alone. It was, it was them being blessed that they might bless the nations. And the blessing of the nations is Jesus, is the one in whom all the promises are yes. And it is in him that we meet God. This morning, we're going to come to the table and we're going to worship. And we can worship because it represents Jesus. If you want to know God, know Jesus. If you want to worship God, see him for who he is. He's the one that allows us access. He's the one who is the sacrificial lamb, the true Passover lamb for us. As we come to the table this morning, I think it's good for us to just pause for a minute. Jesus knows what's in the heart of man. He knows what's in your heart this morning. He knows. And part of coming to this table is acknowledging that to him. Acknowledging the fact that we are sinners and need a savior. We are sinners and need a righteousness that we can't produce in ourselves. Coming to the table is acknowledging, Lord, you know my heart. It's confessing our sin. It's acknowledging our sin and looking to the Savior. Let's bow our heads and do that this morning. Father, we come this morning realizing that this table represents you, the true temple, the true place where we meet God, the one who provides a righteousness that we're devoid of, And as we come this morning, it's a declaration of how desperately we need that righteousness, how desperately we need that blood on the doorposts of our lives. It's a declaration that that is 
where we stand. That's where our hope lies. We aren't trusting in anything except except your work for us, Lord. I'm grateful, Father, that that you know the fickleness of our heart better than we know it ourselves. And so we come confessing sin to you. We come acknowledging, Lord, that we fall short of the glory of God so often and acknowledging how desperately we constantly need the work of Christ on our behalf and declaring that that's where we rest, that's where we stand this morning. Father, I pray for these who, who will come to your table this morning, that they will come under the invitation that we have presented in the bulletin. Father, they will come humbly. They will come gratefully, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. The elders are going to come, and some that may have to assist them this morning to help us to distribute the elements this morning. If you're visiting with us this morning, we always want to say this. You're welcome to let those elements pass by if you're uncomfortable with the invitation of the bulletin. If, if you can live under that invitation, we have open communion. We welcome you to join us in this time. But certainly understand if it's new to you, and you're not comfortable, those elements will come and you can pass them as they come to you this morning. Jesus said on the night that he was betrayed, this is my body which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. So again, we would ask that you would hold the element in remembrance of all that Christ has done partake together. our sins away slain for us and we remember the promise made that all who come in faith find forgiveness at the cross so we share bread of life and we drink of his sacrifice as a sign of our bonds of peace around the table of the body of our Savior, Jesus Christ, torn for you. Eat and remember 
the wounds that heal, the death that brings us life, paid the price to make us one. So we share in this bread of life, and we drink of his sacrifice. As a sign of our bonds of love around the table of the King. Sunday school class, we also read the words of John, same John who wrote the Gospel of John, writes to us in Revelation, speaking of the new heavens and the new earth, and giving us a picture of what that is and what will happen. And it says in Revelation chapter 21 and verse 22, I saw no temple in the city, the new Jerusalem is a city. For its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. The tabernacle and temple were just a picture, a wonderful picture, but only a picture of the true temple. The true temple is God himself, the face of Christ. Take and eat and be grateful. said this is the blood of the new covenant again do this in remembrance of me something new Jesus was declaring was coming and what was new is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament tabernacle and temple pictured that Jesus is our temple is every stain of sin shed for you. Drink and remember he drained death's cup that all may enter in to receive the life of God. So 
Testament as they sacrificed in the tabernacle and temple. Strict instructions were given about selecting that sacrificial animal. It had to be a lamb without blemish. Again, picturing one who would ultimately come, who would be that lamb of God. And with no blemish, who accomplished a righteousness that had no sin in him and did not sin. A perfect sacrifice. Jesus. And we sang this morning, one of the songs said that that we would have a righteous blood applied to us. Whose blood? His. And a righteous blood. It's what this represents. Without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin, but not just any blood, the righteous blood of Christ, the ultimate sacrifice in the temple of his body. Take and drink and be grateful. Let's stand together, can we?
Father, we're grateful this morning again for your Son, our Savior, the Lamb of God who takes away our sin. Lord, we pray this morning that that it would cause us to go and to be willing to, to declare that message to those around us, be willing to fill up what is lacking in regards to Christ's affliction and the personal presentation of that glorious message to our world, that, Father, we would herald it to those who need to hear it and, and uh, you want to save, those you want to bring into your kingdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go in God's peace. You're dismissed.